Hey sweeties, welcome back to Coffee and Cream. It's your favorite lumps of sugar, Lala, and Siobhan, back with another episode. So fill your cups up and let's get toasty. So if you could just give us your name and your bio for our listeners, that would be great. Yeah, so my name is Thomas Westenholz, and I founded a company called Sensensor.com, which is really based on helping people understand the skills behind what I call mature love and intimacy and also sexuality. And I trained in something called the Somatica Method, which is basically a way to work with the body and helping people get into tune with their needs, working with shame, with their boundaries, etc. And basically teaching people the fundamental skills of how to relate um, in a mature, healthy way. And I've also written two books. One of them is primarily focused on emotional intimacy and the other one is very much focused on the emotions behind our core sexual themes and how to uncover those for each other and in, in ourselves. Okay. That's great because our topic was actually why men lack emotional intelligence when it comes to their partner. Yeah, and, and I, th I think that's a very, very good question. And I think there's a predominant idea that men lack emotional intelligence. And I just want to talk a little bit to that myth because actually neuroscience have shown something quite interesting, which is that when measured, men actually tend to have a higher emotional response than women. Um, and what that means does not mean we are more intelligent emotionally at all, but what it just means is we often can have even stronger emotional responses. So I believe that a lot of this can also be explained for the culture that we live in. So we live very much, especially in the Western culture, and I know I've been to the United States many, many times, and I know you have very much a macho culture in many ways similar to South America and also very similar to Europe in many ways where men learn very early that we shouldn't express a lot of emotions because mm -hmm. we get shamed and we get told that it's not right. You know, if we fall, we get told, just get up, you know, don't cry. And very early on, a lot of men learn to simply shut down these emotions. So if you look at it a bit like a language, like you learn to speak the English language, mm -hmm. I learned to speak Danish. As we grow up, we simply didn't learn that language. And while women often, you know, can talk to each other about emotions, men didn't do that either because it wasn't seen as acceptable. Yeah. So yeah. they simply don't have the vocabulary. They don't know how to tune in and sense them. And they simply have not been taught because, again, it's a language we have to learn. And actually, before I started doing this with adults, I actually created social and emotional learning programs for children. Oh, okay. And I can tell you the boys and the, the girls have very similar emotional intelligence when they learn together how to formulate and understand the language of these emotions and how to communicate them to each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. I agree. We were listening to one of your episodes before on how to create the boundaries, um, even in childhood, how to say, you know, no, maybe I don't want to give that person a hug or maybe I don't want to kiss grandma because she has a itchy little fuzzy beard. But um, I do think it's important in childhood that we teach them how to communicate their feelings because when you don't teach someone in childhood how to communicate, they become adults that don't know how to communicate. So I, I do yeah. agree that men, they have it. It's just really hard for them to express the emotion. Mm. And, and it's such a good point you bring up because also 
what happens in the way we often raise our children is they start feeling shame about certain ways that they feel and they start hiding those away but then again becomes issues as they start forming adult relationships and are unable to express that and also when you mention that learning to say no it's so often even the best intended parents and it doesn't mean they're bad parents at all i know we're all doing the best we can and have good intentions but we constantly violate children from just grabbing them start kissing them because we think they're cute but it doesn't mean they like it and because they learn that they just have to accept this to get our love and affection they learn to allow their boundaries to be violated and this happened very early and it's often what we refer to as a pleaser syndrome it has the indication that as we grow up we learn that we have to please other people and we often negate our own boundaries and let them be overstepped within a relationship will often cause resentment um so yeah it's a really good point that you bring up of how important it is to learn that it's okay to say no and also this is part of what we did in our somatic training is what and what i work with now is learning somatically how you can feel your no because often you don't know it logically until it's too late but your body will know instantly because as soon as you feel violated you will have a stress response and the first place you can sense that is in your body mm-hmm. and you can play around with somebody you trust a good exercise i often do with people or give to couples is to sit and they can sit for example two people you sit next to you or opposite each other you can start touching each other and one person can just sit and all they have to do is sense when something doesn't feel right mm-hmm. and notice where it is and as soon as it doesn't feel right maybe it's too intimate too quick then they say stop you mm. don't have to be able to explain because you don't have to justify your boundaries okay. your boundaries are always <laughs> sorry we're agreeing with what you're saying <laughs> And it's just, you know, when you can start noticing where in your body you feel it, you can recognize those signals so much faster. So for me, I know it's when my stomach tends up, mm-hmm. I know something is not right. And often I have no idea why yet logically. That means that I'm now able to stop violation much, much quicker. It could just be that I'm over my capacity and I'm being asked for something I can't cope with. But I know instantly because my stomach will tense up yeah. and I will just tell people, wait, stop, something doesn't feel right. And that way I don't violate myself. Exactly. They say you have a gut feeling. Okay. So you definitely have to follow your, your gut. Um, <laughs> that is something I learned now being 30 years old. I remember being married when I was 19 and going through a divorce. And I chose to go to counseling afterwards because I felt really ashamed to get a divorce because my family was like, well, you know, you're supposed to be married. Divorce is not an option. And it took me a long time to get out of an abusive relationship because what I was raised to be, okay, you can get through anything. You know, divorce is definitely not an option. But it took me a moment to say, you know what? I'm really not happy and I have to do what's right for me. Mm-hmm. It took me a while after counseling to realize, you know what? I don't have to explain no. No is a self-explanatory answer. And so without having, just saying no without making excuses on it is good enough, you know? Right. And so that was something important for me to learn to say, you know what? If I don't want to do it, if I feel like it's not okay to do, then I'm just not going to. And I don't have to explain my reasoning why. I just don't want to. Right. That's right. And I really like that. And, you know, and I think for, for a lot of women, this is even harder than for men, again, because of how we're socialized. This is not genetic. This has more to do with our socialization or how we grow up and are raised differently. And I really want to say that 
to all the listeners out there that setting your boundaries is actually a gift to your relationship, whether it's friendship or with a partner. And I'll explain quickly why. And the main reason for this is, like I said, number one, if you keep letting your boundaries be violated, you will eventually grow resentful and the relationship will deteriorate. So you're actually saving the relationship and making it better for both of you. Number two, if you have a loving partner and friends who hopefully actually care about you, then by setting boundaries, you actually create more freedom for them. And I can explain quickly here why that is. Because again, let's say my partner, she tells me, you know, I don't actually like this, this is not okay. That's great. Because when I know that she can assert her boundary, I can feel more free to express myself. Mm -hmm. If I don't trust that she can assert her own boundary, I constantly have to tiptoe around worrying about when I overstep her boundary and harm her because of course I don't want to do that. So actually by her asserting her boundaries, she allows me to be more me and be more free. So I would say it's a beautiful gift to give to any relationship to uphold our boundaries and to make people aware of those. And we can do that without being hostile. You know, it's simply like you said, knowing that we don't even have to be able to give a justification. Our body knows what's good for us. And if we trust that, and we can simply just say something just doesn't feel right right now. And that's okay just to say that without giving any further reason. Yes, I agree. Do you feel like sometimes though, like maybe the boundaries that we create could be from past traumas? How do we um, create a boundary without being too uh, much of a no person? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And also you bring of course in trauma and, and most of us have some degree of trauma from what we've gone through whether it's physical violence sexual abuse mental trauma um emotional trauma we we pretty much it's hard to get through life without having some form of trauma so you're right and as we go into relationships these you know past people often call it baggage i don't like that term but mm-hmm. often our past and, and our experiences obviously become part of that relationship and you're right it's, it's not about being a no person i think it's about sensing into those boundaries and what they are about and i think if we had trauma it's very very important that we don't violate that no that we feel so it could be sexual trauma and when somebody starts being sexual with someone new they suddenly shut down and it's really important they listen to that no because otherwise they could very easily re-traumatize themselves yeah. and their body would shut down even more their body is shut down for a reason right yeah. because it's trying to protect itself and if you're dealing with trauma and this is where it's about both people having emotional intelligence because as a man you can also learn to notice these signals and it brings us into a bigger context that i often talk about which is consent what is consent and how do we actually see that because if you let's say you're making love to to your wife or your partner and you suddenly notice that she's freezing up again this could very likely be a freeze response and i've seen this happen and that could be somebody who's been sexually traumatized mm-hmm. and therefore the freeze response is the most likely response to go to because that's often what happened when somebody has been raped and then as a man you need to be able to pick this up and stop and check in with your partner and mm-hmm. say what's going on are you okay and even they might not be able to express themselves with the freeze response then it's your job to stop and allow, make sure that you create a safe environment where they can come down from that stress response and you can then talk about it. So again, it requires that both self-awareness but also emotional intelligence. And when you can start then uncovering what's going on, then again, I would involve a therapist if we are talking about sexual trauma because that might be too difficult for a couple to deal with themselves. Yeah. Okay. So is there any way to create a boundary without your partner feeling rejected? 
Yeah, I think that's a beautiful question, and I think that there is. And I think, you know, a lot of the times we, we have this idea that we have an obligation to, to please our partner, to take care of our partner's needs, and the truth is that we can't. We're about to disappoint each other in relationships. It's inevitable. And I think actually one thing that's important to bring up in the context of this, now we're talking about boundaries, is how to deal with disappointment because it will happen. We will dis- it's inevitable. And there's one way we can deal with disappointment that create distance in a relationship and there's one way that actually create more closeness. If I have a disappointment with my partner and she feels very disappointed with me and I just say, that's your problem, you deal with that, that will create disconnect. Mm-hmm. If I instead sit down with her, look her in her eyes and say, I would love for you to express your disappointment to me. And I sit and listen to her and I acknowledge her and I say, yeah, I can understand it's really disappointing for you. You you know, you want to have a threesome and I, I can't give you that right now because I don't feel comfortable with that. But I understand that's really disappointing. And I support her in her disappointment. That can actually become a connecting experience mm-hmm. to go through that together. Does that make sense? Yes, yeah, so definitely. It's, it's really how we engage with that. And you said, how can we then say that to somebody without again of course it depends on that person because if your partner you know is is very much stuck in their ego and they take things very very personally mm-hmm. then i think the main thing is to reassure them and create safety because often when somebody gets triggered and get upset by your boundary it's because they fear rejection yeah. and fundamentally at a core level they fear losing you and that's a real fear so if you understand that fear that's triggering them you can address that first so I would say something like this. I would say, this is not about you. I love you so much. So let's say that your partner wants to have sex and you don't. Then you have to set a boundary, right? That's a practical example. So your man is coming on to you and you don't actually want that. And you say, you know what? I love you so much. And I really want to make sure that when we make love or when we have sex, that it's something we both want. Because that way it's so much more connecting and it enhances our love together. And Right now, I can feel in my body I don't want to, but if that changes later, I will definitely let you know. So that's one way you could say that. So they know that it's not about them. And you could also say, you know, I do have a lot of desire for you and we're absolutely fine. I can just sense right now in this moment, I'm not really feeling sexual. Yeah. Does right. that make sense again? So you, yeah. so you basically make sure you reassure them yeah. and remember that often the reason people can't take it is because they take it as a rejection, which essentially is a fear of losing your partner. Yeah. Okay. That's definitely a great way of putting things because a lot of times, especially with men, they need reassurance. And I've been guilty of answering, you know, both ways when the boundary, like, well, that is your problem. But then I've learned as time went on in our relationship that his problem is essentially my problem if we're looking you know, for a long-term relationship. Mm. So let me figure out, you know, how can I better understand him? Okay. Um, so- yeah, that's a great insight you said there. And then I just want to say it's a really good insight you said because the truth is you're right. If you want a long-term relationship, you're kind of two nervous systems that interwine and you affect each other extremely much more than other people around you because you have this little bubble. So if your partner goes around and feel angry and resentful, that will impact you too. And therefore, it is something we should both care about if one party is is not feeling well. Right. So we had, um, we did a podcast on the five love languages. Like we are all about the love languages. But could you go in depth as to why, what they are and why they are so important? 
Yeah, so I can talk a little bit. So if you've already done a whole podcast, I, I don't want to give you the whole background. Essentially, you know, I normally talk about this like an emotional bank account. So, you know, everybody can relate to having a normal bank account. So this is an emotional bank account. And when you have a positive experience together, you are putting emotions into that bank account. And when you have conflict, tension, stress, frustration, you are drawing out of that bank account. And of course, if you keep drawing out and not putting in, eventually you'll go into overdraft and eventually you'll go bankrupt. So love languages is obviously a way that we learn by our caregivers um, how we feel valued and loved. And it's a way to keep making emotional deposits into your bank account. And if you've done a whole podcast, you're probably familiar with the, the five different love languages, otherwise I'll have to mention them. But essentially why it's important is also because often we give our own love language. So let's say I learned uh, my love language is touch. I love touch, mm-hmm. but yours is, you know, could be words of affirmation. Yeah. So you like to get praise for different things. Often naturally, if I don't know, I would give you touch. And I could do that for two years and you could keep giving me, you know, words of praise and affirmation. And we put all this effort in and the other person is not really feeling that happy or fulfilled. And we both end up getting frustrated because I'm spending a lot of effort getting no no positive feedback. And so are you just because we didn't know each other's love language. And again, and I would also say with the love languages, it's important to be specific because often people do some tests online Uh and they say, oh, I like I like touch. But remember your partner, I know we have the Hollywood dream, which is that, oh, we can read our partner's mind and we okay. should be able to do that because we're in love, but we can't because okay. we can't read minds. So <laughs> the more details you can provide, the more likely you are to get what you want. So instead of saying you just like touch, be specific. I like a shoulder massage. Yeah. You know, when I come home from work, I feel stressed. I really like 10 minutes of shoulder massage. Words of affirmation, what specifically? Because some things you might not care much about being praised about, but other things might have a really big impact on you. What is it that feels really has a strong impact? So the more specific you can be, the more likely you are to get what you want. Yeah. Okay. That is so true. For the longest, like, I want to say the first two years of my relationship, I mean, acts of service is something that, that's number one for me. But my husband will always give me gifts. And I'm like, well, you know, I appreciate the gifts. Of course, I love gifts. Who's going to turn down a gift? But that is not my love language. The dishes are piling up. I'm constantly folding clothes by myself. But I don't want to feel as if I'm being ungrateful for your gift. And so we really had to sit down and talk about our love languages because physical touch is my least thing on my on the least on my my, my mind yeah. so for him that is his biggest thing and it's not just sex he loves a neck massage if we're in the car and we're going somewhere he wants me to rub his neck yeah and i never did that and so it was very important to be specific um on what you like because you can give gifts all day yeah. or you can you know have sex as much as you want but that is Probably not exactly what they're looking for. Okay. That's good. I don't know. uh, Dating, you know, I always make my person that I'm dating take this test because I need to know how I need to love you. Mm -hmm. And you need to know how you about to love me. Yeah. So it's very important if we want to be successful. Yes. It really is, and also I think when you mentioned touch before, how your husband, he really likes to get that massage, I can relate to that very much, and I think 
it's important also to notice, and this comes down to culture again, men are very touch deprived in our cultures because again, it's not really seen as acceptable for men to touch each other, but women can often touch each other. Mm-hmm. So women often get much more touched because of that. Yeah. While men often grow up really, and the only way that a lot of men get touched is through sex. Mm-hmm. And we often also forget that this is also one of the reasons that, not the only reason, but one of the reasons that men very much want sex. What I noticed for myself when I started learning to really enjoy touch was actually that my sexual need went down quite a bit. And I started to realize that actually what I wanted was touch. But it was just the only way I've ever learned how to get it back then was, was through sex. Yeah. Um, and even then, often a man is not touched. It's so on the genitals so it's just interesting to notice that when men start discovering themselves and dare to play with this they often realize that it's actually touch that they really crave and that they miss mm-hmm. a back massage when you come home or holding hands on a date will definitely take you a long way more than a sexual encounter yeah so um you wrote a few books i'm not really sure if you wrote a book on this but um could you go into depth about the three steps into intimacy and love because we're not familiar with that yeah absolutely i can and i think i normally try to compare so imagine a plant that needs soil water and sun love and intimacy needs three components and the first one is safety the second one is vulnerability and the next one is acceptance and i'll go into these we'll talk a bit more about safety later but fundamentally the core of our existence the first thing that our mind wants is to know that we're safe so before then nothing else can really work and we'll talk more about that element later there's a lady called brené brown who's actually a researcher she's done a great ted talk and she's based in the us around vulnerability and it comes down to this core need that we all have to be seen and accepted and yet as we talked about earlier we all grow up having to hide parts of ourselves because they're shamed because we feel they're not accepted and for us to get our parents love or our friends be accepted we have to hide these away and vulnerability is a space where we don't just get physically naked we get emotionally naked and there's few things if anything more connecting and intimate than being vulnerable with another human being and feeling and discovering that they accept those parts of you that you never were able to really show and this can be in a sexual way it can be in an emotional way to be able to sit and share that with the other um, and this is where you get an incredible intimacy that few people experience because we're often so afraid of actually yes. digging in and even for men you know to admit we have vulnerabilities you know i spent 30 years hiding i had any vulnerabilities and wondered why i always felt disconnected from my wife and i realized this was why and then, you know, the main thing people say is, but how do we know if it's safe? Because it's true, it's not safe to be vulnerable with everyone. And I think there's ways that we can start testing and create that safety. So one thing is start with small vulnerabilities. You know, if, you, if you're if you totally new to this, you can even write them down. I did this when I first started out playing with this. Things that, you know, I'm going to categorize them from one to 10, 10 a small vulnerability, 10 something that would be devastated if it was rejected. And I would start sharing small vulnerabilities with that person. And as I saw that they accepted them and didn't judge me, I would share something a bit more vulnerable and slowly build it up until we could start sharing completely freely. I would also see if the other person able to reciprocate. Are they able to meet you in that vulnerability or not? You know, look at how they talk about other people. If they're very judgmental, then maybe they're not that safe to be vulnerable with. So there are signs you can start looking for whether a person is safe to really open up with. 
And I think in every moment, we really have a choice to determine where our relationship goes, whether we open up and share vulnerably or whether we close down and don't. And it can even be small things, you know, saying that we need to feel more safe, which for a lot of people is really vulnerable because we all learn we should be confident and not need others, which, by the way, is completely untrue. Neurology and biology have proven now we are social creatures and we do need others. Mm -hmm. So being able to say, you know, I feel unsafe about when you go out with your friends and get drunk it would be really nice if you could give me a call and just check in it would make me feel more safe that could be really vulnerable for a lot of people mm -hmm. to express that but also it's beautiful and can help you really healing and reduce conflict if your partner is able to then accept that yes. and instead of judging you say yeah i hear that and of course i can do that that's absolutely fine and that brings me to the last element which is acceptance because vulnerability need to be met with acceptance for it to turn into intimacy mm -hmm. and for a lot of people that's hard because we have a lot of judgment and the reason we have judgment is because we're fearful judgment mm -hmm. comes from fear we judge people when we're fearful maybe because it's unfamiliar um, because we feel that we are not good enough or that we're scared that they might leave us etc and therefore we judge to try and shut it down and to become a more accepting human being, if you're not already, would be to start studying and learning about other people. So if you're judgmental about sexuality, go buy a book like from Nancy Friday called My Secret Garden, which talks about female fantasies. And that will start making you have more understanding and be more compassionate. So again, educate yourself, because the more you're educated on other people, the more compassionate and accepting you can be. And that's an enormous gift that you can give to a woman. You know, I have a lot of men who come and ask me, oh, how can I be a better lover? And they want to have some technique. And I say there isn't one golden technique. Every woman is different and the mm. technique is not even the most important. I said what you can give her that few men can is you can give her your undivided acceptance. Mm. And to be mm. able to give that and allow someone to open up fully in their expression is the biggest gift you can give them. Right. Yes. I love it. I love it. <laughs> it I think vulnerability is something that we lack um in society especially i i was telling my husband the other day that i think that's a key part of communication um oftentimes when we try to express ourselves we're met with conflict because that person is not comfortable with what we're saying mm -hmm. and maybe they're not open enough to receive it as well and sometimes especially when in relationships you have conflict but i feel like conflict is good in a relationship because that is an opportunity to grow together and sometimes when that conflict arises that person is not able to be vulnerable enough to grow from it and so um like you said being able to accept you know what is being said and to to actually be vulnerable enough to listen and to feel that emotion in the moment is something that we don't really have. I think we definitely need more of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think you're so right. And it also comes back to why the first step in this, this three-step model is really the idea of safety. And like I said, we can talk more about that later because without safety, we'll be unable to really open up and be vulnerable. And if our partner don't feel safe, they will be unable to hear us. And that's why safety is always the foundation before we can be fully vulnerable. Right. Awesome. Can't miss that part. <laughs> Definitely need that part. So how can couples deal with triggers and conflict? Yeah, that, you know, that's a really good question. And I think it really comes down to the fact that 
when we are a couple, it's a, the more self-awareness we have, the better. Because what you need to do as a couple is to give each other a map of who you are. Because if you don't, then we are going to keep taking the wrong turns. And eventually we will get lost somewhere without knowing how to find our way back. And the more you have an understanding of your history and your triggers, the better you can communicate this to your partner. And it's so important to understand each other and also avoid conflict. And a trigger is often where you see an exaggerated emotional response and it often has something to do with something that happened in the past and i can try and give you a fictive example here it could be that the husband is leaving the house and he closes the door really hard and his wife get up and starts screaming and gets so angry and say what are you doing you idiot and he gets really angry and defensive and say hey don't talk to me and they have a big argument and if instead she had the self-awareness and could describe her trigger which might be that she had an alcoholic dad that would get really drunk and when he left the house he would close the door really hard so that really triggers her and get mm -hmm. her adrenaline going and therefore she snaps if he understood that and first of all he could obviously avoid that trigger so he knew that he would be able to not close the door hard because he would know that that would trigger her second mm -hmm. of all had he done it by mistake because he forgot he would now not get triggered himself because he would know oh he would know the why and you know this is part of what they do in hollywood storytelling so well they know that when you give the why of a character, then we start feeling compassion for that character. Mm -hmm. Even if the character do something that we don't necessarily like, if we understand why they do it, we feel more compassionate. And by understanding your why behind these triggers, your partner can then be more compassionate towards you. Because now you're not just somebody attacking them. Now they can see that okay. you're just reliving your drunk dad who was really abusive and they can instead feel compassion. And that obviously means that they also know we're not having a logical conversation. Mm -hmm. People so often get stuck in logic and say, no, you did this, no, you did this. And number one, when we are triggered, our logic doesn't work anymore. That part okay. of your brain shut down and so does your memory. So probably neither of you remember fully precisely what happened. That's yeah. important to know. And second of all, you cannot solve an emotional conversation when we're in our primal brain with logical tools and this is why it really comes down to knowing how to calm yourself and your partner down yeah. and it's what we call regulation which is a key skill in relationship to create safety so there's self-regulation so how can you calm yourself down when you know you're triggered when you suddenly feel you want to explode or you feel angry at that point nothing constructive can happen because right. you're in your fight flight or freeze response and you're basically a primate animal right now mm -hmm. and your higher cognition doesn't work again it's just neuroscience so what can you do to calm yourself down in that moment what do you need to do you need to not engage with your partner in any way or form the first thing you need to do is movement why because the fight or flight response that make you get triggered was meant to basically make you fight a threat of flight run away mm -hmm. it's meant to move and you use that adrenaline by moving your body this you could actually go for a run you yeah. could go have a dance in your living room i've done that sometimes when i'm triggered you can go upstairs and punch a pillow do whatever you need to do mm -hmm. to release that adrenaline mm -hmm. because before you do your mind can't come down and you can't access your cognition you're just an animal so move that's how you release it once you've done that then you can use breathing slow deep meditative breathing activate something called the parasympathetic nervous system which basically regulates us and calms us down so once you've done that then you're able to engage with your partner and again your partner can then help also regulate your nervous system we call that co-regulation you can do that through eye contact you can do that through gentle touch you can do that through 
what we called before attachment reassurance when you said to your partner you know we're safe we'll work through this together so they know you're not leaving that will also calm down the nervous system but the first part is that we self-regulate because until we've done that nothing constructive will happen i agree and um i was actually just speaking with someone so so often when you get married they're like oh you have to go to couples counseling before you get married you're engaged so you should go to couple premarital counseling but I really think that we should also allow people that to know that you should go to individual counseling as well. Um, as he was saying, it's important to recognize your triggers. And even though you know not everyone is suffering from PTSD, we all have been in previous relationships where, like he said, we we carry that quote right. unquote baggage. Um, so I think it's important for us to go to individual counseling as well so that whatever, um, you know, boundaries that we have, we are able to identify why we have that boundary, why we have that trigger so that we are then able to communicate with our partner so that when we do go to premarital counseling, you know, we're able to say, Hey, this is a trigger of mine and they're able to receive it and not feel like you know, you're creating too many boundaries. Right. That's good because I know... I I really... Go ahead. I just think it's it's such an important point that you bring up about the individual therapy because it's how we gain that self-awareness. And also, again, we are storytelling animals, meaning our brain makes meaning out of things by creating stories. And you're right, our past obviously means that we have a bias and we create certain stories based on our past perception of the world. And what that means is every time our partner does something where there's gaps in what has happened, we only have part information, we will make up a story and interpreting that from our world. And just to give you an example how this can be really destructive if we don't have that self-awareness, let's say I'm waiting for my partner at the cinema and she comes and she's 15 minutes late. And I get really irritated and I start, you know, attacking him, say, I can't believe um, that you're so late and blah, blah, you don't have any respect for my time. If you hear what's happening right now, I'm creating a story out mm-hmm. of missing information. I don't know if she's late. That's a fact. I don't know why she's late. That's a fact. I don't know that yet. I don't know if she disrespect my time. That's all a story of how I've been made to feel in the past that I'm now projecting onto this. So instead, it's important to realize that when we are missing parts of information we create our own story and when we have that self-awareness i can recognize and say oh actually it's my story that is spinning off now i don't know if she doesn't respect me Mm -hmm. she probably does respect me because she's my partner and then i can ask her questions instead of being confrontational Mm -hmm. i can say how come you were late and then i can express to her again in a vulnerable way what my needs are instead of attacking her i can say you know what it's really important for me that you're on time and at least if you can't that you just send me a message because of my x y and z i feel that you know people don't value me if they're late and i know it's my story but it's still important for me so could you do that next time please and that is much more likely to be received than me attacking her right right yes definitely that's great so you know oftentimes we put expectations on our relationships and i know we're not supposed to do that um but what would you say that expectations have to do with relationship satisfaction yeah it's a good question and i think 
first of all, in, in the way we live in our culture and society, we have completely unrealistic expectations. And I'll try and break down why. So basically what happens is we grow up when we're small kids. We have our parents, our caregivers, and they give us safety and attachment. That's what we go to when we cry, when we're upset, when we need support. And we have our friends, and we go out into the world to explore, to get our excitement, to see the unfamiliar, to learn new things. And then when we hurt ourselves, we run back to mommy and daddy, or our caregivers, and we get comfort. Suddenly, as we grow up, we expect both of these from one person. We try to merge them, even though they actually live on the opposite side of the spectrum. Because safety is everything that's familiar, that's known, while excitement is what's new and unfamiliar. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying you can't have both in a partner. I just think it's important to be aware of this because often, first of all, people need different elements. So some people need more safety than excitement. Some people want more excitement than safety. But by being aware that these are opposite sides of the spectrum, you can also tune in and you can know what your needs are. So maybe if you're feeling a bit unsafe, maybe you're too much on the excitement spectrum, the unknown, and you can tell your partner, I need to feel a bit more safe. If you feel really safe and it's all boring and mundane, you've probably been stuck too much in what's familiar and you need to try and add in some elements of excitement and newness. So this way you can start navigating that spectrum. But often because we're aware of that, we just expect that they should both exist at the same time, even though they're actually opposites. And I also think we have to remember that we are tribal animals, even though we don't live that way anymore. That's what we naturally biologically are. So we used to live in tribes and small communities that would give us all these needs. Now we expect from one partner to be our best friend, our soulmate, our financial support, emotional support, share our interests, raise the kids, do the housework, be the one to make us laugh, keep us safe, give us sex, give us touch, be safety, but also exciting. All this onto one person. And of course, no one person can fulfill all that, which is why I always say to people, write down your needs and then find out which needs are you able to outsource outside your main partner? Because you know what? You can have friends that make you laugh if your partner's not that funny. You can share some of your interests that you don't share with your partner with friends. If you need more touch, maybe you can go get a professional massage. You know, you can start outsourcing some of these needs so it doesn't all fall on your partner. Um, which also brings us back to what we talked about before. How do we then deal with disappointment when that does come up? But I think one of the first things is just to realize that in modern society, we take in what used to be the expectations of a whole village and often put onto one person, and it's not realistic to expect that from our partner. So instead, realize what your needs are and find ways that you can get some of them from your partner and outsource some of them to other places. Right. That is so. That is so important. Like that was a wow moment for me. <laughs> that was definitely a wow moment because. We do put all those expectations on one person, and it's, it isn't realistic at all. You know, my husband wants me to go to the strip club, and he wants me to go golfing and watch Formula One races, and I'm not interested in majority of that stuff, but I try to be, you know, his best friend and, you know, his golf buddy all in one. Yeah. And like like he was saying, you know, maybe you should find a golf buddy. Right. Know, maybe. I can't be all of that and it's important to communicate that as well and that's probably something that I've been lacking it's like you know what instead of just saying no I don't want to do it just explain you know like oh you don't have a friend or two right (laughs) you know (laughs) so that is that I can't wait till he listens to this episode (laughs) (laughs) he's getting a male view so you know that's always good um 
But we're guilty as women too, you know. Yeah. We want our husband to be everything. Like, listen to me talk about the girls at work who piss me <laughs> off, and he does not care. Yeah, like, okay. let him watch his football game. Call one of your friend girls. Like, right. <laughs> I don't know. I I think I've always given my partner space because I have a lot of girlfriends, you know. Although I do disappear every now and then. I come back because mm-hmm. I need my girlfriends. They yes. know me. They understand me. They have been in a relationship with me yes. longer than you have. Yes. You know what I mean? And it's so often, too, that when we do get in a relationship, like you said, we disappear. And and then we put all of, that, all of our energy into that relationship, not realizing, like you said, we do need to outsource some of that energy. Right. Because you can't just consume, you know, the relationship with everything that you've been wanting um, because you, you do need your friends around. Yeah, you need your tribe. I call it, you're right, that's the same <laughs> as I call it tribe. We need our tribe, and you're right, because, of course, one person can't fulfill all that and be all that, and you're not supposed to be the golf body and all these things if that's not what you want. But he should still have that, and you're right, then he needs a tribe where he can get some of these needs from. Yes, right. Beautiful way of expressing. This one. So... Why are some moments more important than others in a relationship? Yeah, again, it's a good question. So I think this is what I refer to as key moments. And basically, what I often see is that couples in general have a good relationship and yet they will come in and there's something underlying that's just not right. They somehow have disengaged and are not emotional connecting anymore and very often what happens is we have to realize that not all moments are equal and what i mean by that is there are key moments where we really need our significant others to be there to make us feel safe and comfort us this could be giving birth it could be when we just get a diagnosis of cancer in hospital it could be just being fired from our job but basically moments of crisis where we feel really really exposed and vulnerable and we need that other party to be there and help us feel safe and if we are not there in that moment then it breaches the fundamental level of trust in a relationship and these moments really are black and white because they're neurologically wired in in our fear response and there are no gray areas even if there are really good excuse maybe you were stuck at, at work but the fact is it will still damage trust if somebody were not there in one of these key moments Of course, it can happen that we let our partner down. It happens, even for the best of us who have great intention. I did it. You know, I had let my, you know, my my wife down as well when when there was moments where I simply couldn't be there for whatever reason it was. And then what's important to understand is for the relationship to resume the trust, you have to have a repair conversation. And often people are simply not aware because they just don't talk about that this happened. They don't share that disappointment. And even if they do, often the other party can't hear it because you feel attacked and blamed mm-hmm. and will start giving logical reasons. But again, if they could recognize that we are now having an emotional conversation and we need to not talk about logic, why you couldn't be there, it's not about you being a bad person. We have to restore the emotional trust. So how do we do that? You sit down again and what's important is look at each other, sit so you can see each other's eyes. You know, Don't have these conversations when you're driving. I see couples do this all the time. <laughs> and when you're driving or walking, you don't have eye contact. And this is so important because we pick up so many cues through body language, through eye contact. 
And when we can only see people in our peripheral vision, it actually activates our amygdala, our fear center. So mm-hmm. it's more likely to make us anxious and trigger another argument. Don't never do this while you're driving or walking. Make sure you're sitting, have space and can see each other. And then the person whose trust has been breached can express their pain, but make sure you focus on I statements. So don't start blaming and oh. say, you did this, you did that, because that will just trigger them yes. and make them go defensive. Say, I felt left alone, mm-hmm. which caused me so much sadness and pain. I felt that I couldn't count on you, and therefore I feel scared to trust you. It's focused on I, 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 not yes. on you did, right? And then they're more able to be able to hear you, and then express what it is you need and say, I need to trust that you can be here for me when I really need you, and right now I can't do that, so I feel scared opening up to you. That's a vulnerable way to express the pain. And then the partner, he has to acknowledge the pain. And what's important is here, there's a difference between acknowledging something and agreeing. So you don't have to start a logical debate again and say, oh, but I did this because I was stuck at this meeting and I couldn't go, blah, blah, blah. You don't have to agree that you've done anything wrong. But you do have to acknowledge the impact it had on your partner. So acknowledge, don't agree if you don't agree. So you can acknowledge and say, I hear that this was really painful for you and I understand that you felt really left alone. Because again, if you try and understand the experience of being left alone in a painful moment, of course, that would be distressing. So again, even though we don't feel we might be at fault for that, we can still acknowledge the pain. And the second is then to accept some responsibility and say, I can see that my action had this impact on you. Again, it doesn't mean that you say you've done something wrong necessarily, but you can see that your actions had that impact. Because, and the last bit is to then state how you might act differently in the future because this is how they start trusting that you can be different in the future by acknowledging the impact you had take responsibility and state how you act differently and this is how you start repairing of course you have to then act on it it's not enough to just say it and then you can start rebuilding the trust again but if you don't do this even though your relationship is great you have fun you share interest if you don't heal these key moment breaches there will be an underlying lack of trust in a relationship yes I completely agree, Thomas. I think it's definitely important to do all of the steps, especially the acting on it, on how will you prevent that from happening again. Um, That is probably the most important step out out of all of them. (laughs) (laughs) So can you go back and um, go more in depth in the safety element of the three steps? Yeah, of course, we can absolutely talk a bit more about safety. And I think we, I try to use an analogy when I talk about safety because a lot of people come in and talk about, oh, we have communication issues, we have different sexual needs. But really, the main thing it often comes down to is that people feel fundamentally unsafe. And as we talked about later, nothing works without earlier, nothing works without safety. Imagine that you're building a house on a hill and it's a hill that's bound to have known to have earthquakes and mudslides. Eventually, at some point, that house is going to collapse and falling down. So first, we have to pick a good foundation, and that foundation is safety. No communication skills will work unless we feel safe. Because again, when we're not safe, we feel triggered, and we will react from our really primal response. So that's number one. And I think to understand safety, we need to understand a little bit about what's called attachment styles. And attachment styles are patterns we learn from our caregivers as we grow up of how we attach to others and how we feel safe. And I can quickly go over these. So one of them is called anxious attachment. And often what happens if somebody had 
inconsistent caregivers, meaning maybe they were really loving to you, then suddenly they were not there, or maybe you had a lot of love, but then suddenly one of your parents just abandoned and left and you didn't know why, that will often create what's called anxious attachment. And these people are often, I don't like this term, they're often categorized as needy. Mm -hmm. And the problem with this is a very judgmental term that doesn't actually show understanding of why they have this behavior, again, why, and also how we can address the need to make them feel safe. Because actually they're not needy. All they are people who had an experience of the safe caregivers that they had somehow neglected them and weren't there when they needed them and were abandoned. So they have an underlying fear of being left. So yes, they feel a bit more insecure, but often this can be addressed by giving them that security and by giving them that reassurance, by making sure you tell them, I'm here, I want to be with you. If there's issues, say, you know, and, and ask them what needs they have to feel safe. You know, they might be the one who needs you to just check in when you're out with your mates. And instead of judging them, which will create distance and make them feel shame around these needs that are totally natural for somebody who had inconsistent caregivers, by understanding the attachment style, you know what you need to do to create safety. The second one is what we call avoidant. And that's often a child that learned that actually their needs would not be met at all. Maybe they had to grow up and be the adult really quickly. Mm -hmm. Maybe their parents were drug abusers and just didn't respond to any of their needs. And they learned that they could not count or trust on anyone. And they had to take care of themselves. And they often become avoidant. They're often more associated with men than women. But women can be this too. And they often seem to fear intimacy. And they fear intimacy because they learned they couldn't trust their caregivers, the people that were supposed to give them intimacy. And therefore, they often try to avoid, they pull away, they often want more time to themselves. Um, and again, it's important to know, especially if you're dating somebody who's avoid, when they're stressed, they very often need time to themselves because that's how they can regulate themselves. Yeah. They can't do that with other people. And also the dynamic between the anxious and avoidant can, can become toxic if they don't have this knowledge because the anxious one will often reach out for the avoidant, the avoidant will feel controlled and retrieved. Mm -hmm. The anxious now get more anxious, right? So they try to reach out even more, making the avoidant feel more control, and they yeah. basically become a vicious cycle. And because they're not aware of their attachment patterns, they don't know how to break it until the relationship deteriorates. Um, so therefore, it's really important to have an understanding. And there are two other attachment styles, but we don't need to go into them so much in detail right now. I think what's important is don't go label your partner now and say, I heard this podcast and you are anxious and blah, 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 because that's not going to be productive. And also, it's important to remember attachment styles are not fixed. They are learned patterns, but research has shown consistently that they can change. And this is the beauty of relationships. Because while we can hurt and injure each other, and most of our injuries and traumas come from our relations with other people, the deepest wounds, we also have the capacity to heal each other. Yeah. And this is what's so beautiful. They saw that over two years, if couples were able to create a safe attachment, it would actually start rewiring the brain. And people that were anxious would start feeling more safe and less insecure. And avoidant would start feeling more um, comfortable with intimacy. And this is a wonderful thing by being able to give each other that. So don't categorize each other. Instead, understand what are the needs of that attachment style and how can you do that to create that safety that's needed. That's beautiful. That is definitely beautiful. I think now that we've talked about safety and knowing our love languages and, and knowing our triggers, um, I think, I hope, hopefully all of our listeners are able to understand how to create boundaries but right. with creating boundaries, like, of course, resentment comes. Mm -hmm. And 
we I would like to know like how is it developed and how can we prevent it? Yeah, again, good question. So I think we already obviously talked a bit about boundaries and the gift of doing that, and that is probably the number one way to avoid resentment. The other part is to start looking at our needs. So often we have neglected and negated our own needs because we learned that maybe they weren't important. We had to focus on others' needs. It comes a bit back to this pleaser syndrome, right? We learned that mm-hmm. to get that affection we needed, we had to do X, Y, and Z for others. So we had to somehow push our own needs back. The problem with doing this long-term in a relationship is you can do that and get the affection from your partner, but it's going to build resentment within you yeah. if you consistently don't get your needs met. So it's really important. Again, this is about the self-awareness piece. Like I said, without self-awareness, it's hard to have flourishing relationships. So sit down and start getting in touch with your needs. And you might say, but how do I do that? A good place to start is by listening to your frustration and your more negative emotions. So if you feel anger, there's probably some need hidden beneath that that's mm-hmm. not being fulfilled. Or you might be violated, which is typical of, of anger to be an expression of consistent violation. If you feel frustrated, there's probably a need hiding underneath that, you know? And you can say, why am I frustrated? Oh, it's because I need a bit more time for myself and, and my hobbies. Maybe it's because, oh, so I haven't had touch for three months. That will start revealing what are these key needs. And then you can write that down. And again, then you can start expressing them to your partner. But again, focus on not doing it with blame. Focus on the I statements. Don't yeah. say, oh, you never touched me. Because of course, that's going to trigger them. And again, we'll end up in a fight and have nothing constructed come out of that. Instead, focus on saying what you need. And okay. you could come and say, you know what? I really noticed that I feel really frustrated that I haven't had touch for three months. And I would love if sometimes when you have spare energy that I can get a little massage. Maybe I can even ask for it to remind you. Would that be okay? And they'll be like, yeah, of course, I just forgot because I'm busy too. And, you know, they're much more likely to be able to hear you if you communicate it in that way. Correct. What Something I've learned now that I'm older is anger is a secondary emotion. And so I often try my best, even though I fail a lot, is whenever my husband do get angry, I try to figure out why is he acting that way? Because no one just walks around angry. So what is making you feel that way? Are you sad about something? You know, was your day a little stressed off? So why exactly are you responding in that manner? Because it's not your initial reaction, you know? Right. Yeah, and I think that's a really good insight. And you're right, I found the saying that often underneath can be hidden sadness. And again, it comes a bit back to our culture is that Anger is one of the emotions that are very acceptable for men to feel as we grow up. So it's one of the emotions we are very, and often actually it's women that are not allowed to express anger, right? So I would say the one emotion men are better at is anger. Mm-hmm. Um, because as men, that's okay to get angry. You know, if they hit you, fight back. We're allowed to be angry. So that's very often a default emotion that men go to. And you're right, also when we are sad, it often gets expressed through anger because we are not necessarily in tune and don't know how to be vulnerable and express that sadness. Mm -hmm. So I think you're very right. It's important to try and look at what is it actually that's underneath? What is actually going on? Why is it that this anger is coming up? So it's a great point that you bring up. Yes, I truly enjoyed this podcast. And I feel like a lot of our listeners are going to learn a lot of, you know, from this and dig deeper within themselves. And could you um, tell our listeners about your podcast? Because although me and Coffee, I mean me and Cream, listen to it, could you let our listeners know so they could um, subscribe as well? 
Yeah, of course. So essentially, it's called Sen Sensa. You might be able to put a, a link or spell it for the description, yeah. yeah. but it's SETI and S E N S A, Sen Sensa, and it's really focused on trying breaking down the science behind relationships in a really simple, comprehensive way, where it's easy for people to apply these steps into something practical in their lives. Yeah. Um, because I think that's how we make science meaningful for people, rather than just some blah blah blah. That they can take it and they can go away straight away and actually implement it and see some results from that. So yeah, I hope it's been really useful for the listeners. Yes, thank you so much, Thomas, for um, creating the time to have this podcast with us, and I am so ready for our listeners to dig deep. And I'm pretty sure you'll get some more listeners as well because I think this will probably be our number one. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's been my pleasure. If you ever want to talk about the emotionals of sexuality, we can absolutely do that too. Yes, we will definitely schedule you for another one. I think that will be more popular than this one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. All right, well, you have a good time out there in London, and we will try to keep a little cool in Texas. <laughs> you too. Have a beautiful day. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, that was amazing. Okay, I feel like we just had a whole therapy session. Definitely, I I took some valid points away from this, and I I want to write down my needs. Okay, I think this is important to do. We have homework, sweeties. Like we need to write down our needs. We need to figure out what our our attachment um languages. Okay. And I'm glad that he hit on that because. That is in the book that I read about the relationships by uh, Shan Boudreaux. Mm -hmm. So I figured out what my attachment attachment styles were. And they were different because, like, for family, I'm secure. Mm -hmm. But when it came to relationship, I was anxious. Yes. And, And it's probably because in the past, you know, like, I don't call... Because I don't like my call to be missed. It's exactly. I get triggered yeah. when you don't answer my phone call. So I'm going to text you. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense. Because it's, it's, when he was mentioning the avoidant, I was like, why is he talking about me like this? Like, <laughs> I am definitely one of those people that retreat. I need to be alone because that's where I find peace at. I yeah. find I, I am the type of person that truly loves to do some soul searching right why am i like this and i gotta figure it out before i talk to you again yeah because you upsetting me and my home girl okay. I'm, my home girl is my inner self y'all <laughs> like i we triggered and i need to know why because i'm not uh, gonna allow you to make me feel unsafe right you know so I really want you guys to do your homework and we'll do ours and continue to post on this subject. Thanks for tuning in. And I hope y'all enjoyed today's topic. Send us some mail. Let us know about some topics you would like for us to discuss. And drop your sugar mail at sugarmail19 at gmail.com. <laughs>